Welcome to Israel and You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Our host is Aaron David Free, president of Israel Team Advocates International. Aaron is an author, speaker, Bible teacher, and an advocate for Israel and the Jewish people on college campuses nationwide. This is Israel and You. Hey, welcome to Israel and You. We've got a great program lined up today. We have a special guest, and the headline of this program is a question. Is Islamophobia a real thing? Our guest is Dexter Van Zyl, who's the managing editor of Focus on Western Islamism, FWI, founded by the Middle East Forum in 2022. While editor, he has worked to put the voices of moderate and reform-minded Muslims before larger audience in the West and has worked to show how Islamist organizations have falsely portrayed themselves as speaking on behalf of Muslim communities in Western democracies. So, Dexter, welcome to Israel and You. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So here's the first question. At the outset, one of the things I've seen in a lot of the publicity surrounding the Middle East Forum is the phrase, radical Islam is the problem and moderate Islam is the solution. Can you elaborate on that, Dexter? Sure. That was a statement that was made by the Middle East founders, uh, Middle East Forum's founder, Daniel Pipes, uh, soon after 9-11. Uh, and that was when a lot of people's attention was focused on Islam, uh, it, you know, because 3,000 people had just died in uh, New York City and also in the fields of Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C. And so that really generated an awful lot of interest and a fair amount of fear about how Islam was going to be practiced in the modern world or was being practiced in the modern world. And one of the things that Daniel was trying to do, I think, was to kind of get people to recognize that there were multiple streams within the Islamic faith. Not everyone was interested in uh, engaging in terrible acts of violence like what we had just witnessed, uh, and that there were efforts to reform uh, how Islam was practiced in the modern world, but that the, that the, the reformers had an awful lot of work to do because there were elements within the traditional practices of Islam that were essentially at odds with how the modern world operated. And uh, one of the, the difficulties associated with uh, that effort at reform is, is, that, uh, is the Islamophobia charge, because it's used to shut down uh, discussion about anything related to, to uh, Islam, or and especially it, it also makes it hard to even talk about Islamism, which is a political movement uh, that relies on Islamic sources to justify the imposition of, uh, you know, blasphemy laws in the West. And, and if you can't talk about these things, it's really hard to kind of even address the problem. Yeah, so what I've seen, especially since 9-11, is, you know, the, so many of the radical-minded Islamists uh, you know, continue to, to foment the idea that, you know, their whole political ideology, which is basically to push Sharia law on Western democracies like United States of America. They, they want to create a caliphate in America and, and impose their Islamic, radical Islamic law on the United States citizens. So, you know, we're seeing that. And so anybody that just comes out and says, I'm afraid of this, uh, I'm not into this. I'm I'm opposed to this whole idea, political ideology of Islamism. You know, they're steamrolled. They're called bigots, 
And so that's basically what, what you're saying in the, in the Middle East Forum, that, that the moderate Muslims, and I, I, I know a lot of moderate Muslim people that, that are not wanting to impose radical Sharia law upon America, but oftentimes they've been silenced themselves. And I've got a draft copy of a book review you're doing on books on Islamophobia, and I see that in the text you put Islamophobia in quotation marks. And so what are you trying to say with those quotation marks around the word Islamophobia? Yeah, well, I guess one of the things is uh, I'm not trying to give license to uh, enmity or hostility towards Muslims uh, or, or to the Islamic faith. But what I'm trying to say is, is that is to kind of it's, it's basically kind of a protest to say, look, you've used the Islamophobia charge, which is, you know, technically uh, uh, an you know, the notion that people have an unreasonable uh, fear of Islam to silence criticism or discussion of it, uh, of how the faith is practiced in the modern world, and also essentially make it much harder to confront, as I said earlier, the whole uh, political agenda of Islamism. And what that does is that that essentially makes the whole notion of reform within Islam much more difficult, because what, what is people are trying to do is essentially uh, impose what Daniel Pipes has called the, the Rushdie rules associated with uh, that, that came that, that, that were basically imposed uh, during the, the Rushdie affair, which took place in the late 1980s after the publication of the Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. And yeah, yeah, well, what happened was is that Salman Rushdie, he was he wrote a book called The Satanic Verses, which was offensive to a uh, a, a lot of, of people within the Muslim world. And essentially, uh, and at uh, Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa calling for his death. And just recently, I think in about 2016, which was just a few years ago, uh, there was a, 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 a media c company in Iran that ad ad said that they would give $600,000 to anybody that assassinated Rushdie. Wow. And so... What we're talking about was is an attempt to essentially silence uh, any discussion about Islam on the part of of of, of non-Muslims, especially, but Muslims as well, uh, and and essentially an attempt to impose blasphemy laws uh, on Westerners. And there was a, a you know a number of Rushdie's translators were uh, two of them I think were killed, uh, and then one of them. Uh, a mob in Turkey set a uh, hotel on fire trying to kill another one of his translators. And 37 people were killed as a result of that fire, but not the translator himself. And, and that had a huge impact on uh, intellectual life in the West without people relieving, uh, without even understanding at the time. Paul Berman said, look, the, this Rushdie affair has created an entire class of intellectuals who have to live under guard, essentially. And that those the Rushdie rules is basically to basically render mute anyone that would speak about Islam uh, as it's practiced or or its history. And essentially what that does is that that then gives the field to Islamists uh, who can essentially tell everybody how they, they need to practice. And one of the ironies about this whole thing is, is that uh people on the left have actually assisted in the imposition of these Rushdie rules through uh, their regular deployment of the Islamophobia charge against people who try to speak openly about these issues. And, you know, 
it, it's it's a frightening thing to see this process play itself out, and it takes a fair amount of nerve to essentially say, "No, I'm not going to cave into this." Um, and so that's, I think, and I've seen it play itself out, and and I think we all have. One of the worst instances is uh, in England. Uh, there was a group of uh, grooming gangs comprised largely of men, Pakistani men, um, you know, who were Muslim. And essentially they were raping and grooming and trafficking thousands of young girls in England. Okay. Mm. And it was very well documented. Everyone kind of knew about it, but nobody really wanted to do anything about it. Uh, until essentially there was just so much outrage about this scandal that it, it broke to the surface. And the reason why uh, law enforcement didn't do anything about it in the United Kingdom was quite simply because they were afraid of being called racist and Islamophobes. So they essentially abandoned their jobs. They abandoned their post as law enforcement officers. And thousands of young girls were, were raped. And 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 this sounds like something out of like a dystopian science fiction novel, but it really happened. And so what we're dealing with is, is that it's it's an attempt to basically impose tyranny on on people so that they can't exercise their natural rights, most notably uh, their right to free speech. And that has knock-on effects because if you can't talk about these things, then you can enact policies that are necessary for the public good. You talk about in, in France the um, the newspaper magazine that you know came out with the the cartoon pictures of Muhammad, and then a radical Islamists you know came into the uh, the offices and, and you know murdered several people. But isn't that kind of in the same <clears throat> um, genre here of yeah. of you know oppressing anyone that would come out with uh, you know, anything that would expose the, the radical ideology of Islamism? Right. And, and that, one of the interesting things, and I've looked at the, the database for uh, the, the LexisNexis database, and I've tried to track uh, the number of references to Islamophobia uh, in the media. And one of the things that I've seen is, is that the references to Islamophobia increased after 9-11, and they also increased substantially after the Charlie Hebdo attacks and also the Bataclan attacks that took place in Paris uh, 2015. And the thing is, is that with the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre, essentially what you had was is that you had essentially, you know, a bunch of satirists and writers and journalists uh, posting pictures of Muhammad and, and making fun of the Islamic faith or and making fun of Islamists in particular, okay? Mm -hmm. And the thing was, is that I, I think that most Muslims are, are, they might be offended by that, but they're not going to go out of their way to harm anyone. Uh, but essentially what you need, you know, in order to impose this tyranny is just a small number of people who are willing to engage in acts of violence to essentially uh, send a message that if you do this, you're going to be killed. And, the, and that, I think, how did people respond? Uh, some people responded principally by defending the principle of uh, free speech and saying, look, this we can't tolerate this. But then there were other people that went out of their way to essentially blame the folks at Charlie Hebdo magazine, saying, well, if they hadn't you know, posted these cartoons, 
essentially there wouldn't have been these riots and or, or or well there was a cartoon riots before that but they probably wouldn't have been shot and so and what has happened is is that people are coming up with uh so-called principal explanations as to why they shouldn't exercise their right to free speech hmm. the problem is and this has been doc you know the one argument that's been made is is that look if you can see the ground on one of these issues uh, then essentially, then if you can see the ground on blasphemy, then suppose there were other practices associated with Islamism and promoted by Islamists that you object to, then how do you combat those without speaking about them? And and why can't the threat uh, of people who criticize Islam uh, then be deployed in the next go round uh, regarding public policy? And I think that's a really big issue. And another thing that it does is that it incentivizes people, uh, non-Muslims even, to say, look, um, you know, Andre Serrano, he was an artist uh, back in the day, I think what the, I can't even remember the dates, but he he put a crucifix in a beaker of urine and called it, if you pardon the expression, uh, piss Christ. And, and I don't mean to offend your listeners, I just need to tell them that's what happened. Sure. And the the interesting thing was is that there were some real expressions of anger, but we did not see the same level of outrage that we saw in response to uh, the Rushdie affair. We didn't have any huge global riots. There was no attempt to essentially uh, drive intellectuals underground and force them to be silent. So this is this Islamophobia charge is deployed in uh, to further tyranny. That's really what it is. There's really nothing else about it. And so, you know, and if to the idea that I have to even like I, 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 to talk about issues associated with natural law, the rights to free speech, uh, you know, I, I guess we have to keep making those arguments. We do. I want to ask you a question because I, I read a book a couple years ago by M Melanie Phillips, and she's a journalist uh, in England. And uh, she wrote a book called Lundinistan and talks exactly about what you're talking about, how, you know, the country of England has imported so many radical Islamists that there are areas of, of London that the police can't even go into, as, as you were saying earlier. And I want to ask you when we come back from the break, do you foresee that happening in the United States of America and places like Michigan where already we're seeing Sharia law in some communities. So when we come back from the other side of the break, we're going to talk about this issue of radical Islam in America and how it steamrolls good citizens. See you on the other side. Hello, I'm Aaron Free, president of Israel Team Advocates. Israel Team is standing in the gap for the Jewish people in a time of growing anti-Semitism in America. And there are many forces, even within Christianity, that want to divide the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. There has to be those who proclaim the truth about Israel in a time when nations are calling for her demise. Our organization works on college campuses where anti-Israelism is in vogue, especially on evangelical college campuses. Evangelical anti-Israel groups highly financed by George Soros and his Open Society organization are pushing evangelical millennials towards the abyss of anti-Semitism, and they are succeeding. One such group, the Telos Group, is funding 
all expense paid trips for young pastors and evangelical college students to Israel where they feed them lies about the Jewish people and the land and they come home anti-Israel. In just the last four years, evangelical young people have cut their support in half for Israel. In a survey in 2018, 69% of evangelical young people said they supported the Jewish people. A new survey in 2021 found that only 33% of evangelical young people support the state of Israel. So if we don't push back against the growing anti-Israelism within evangelical movement, evangelicalism could be anti-Israel within just a few short years. I'm asking you to help Israel team in this fight. I'm asking you to stand with us as we stand for God's covenant with Abraham and the land and the great nation that God has building in Israel. Will you give to Israel Team today? And there's two ways you can give. Go to our website, israelteam.org, to donate section, and you can give securely online. Be sure to give us your mailing address so that we can send you our new book, The Casualty of Contempt. You can also mail your donation to Israel Team. Find our address on our website, israelteam.org. That's israelteam.org. This is Israel in You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Hey, welcome back to Israel in You. Our special guest is journalist Dexter Van Zyl, who is uh, an editor for Focus on Western Islamism for uh, Middle East Forum. And Dexter, before the break, we were talking about journalist Melanie Phillips, who wrote a book, London and Stan, who, you know, just discusses in her book about uh, you know London basically importing radical Islam into the city and actually throughout all of England where there's areas where the police don't even go anymore because they've already uh, instituted Sharia law in some Islamic neighborhoods so we're seeing that in America in, in states like like Michigan where we we read that you know there's so many radical Islamists in certain segments and uh, areas of Michigan that the police won't even venture into those areas because they're basically submitted to Sharia law. So do you see that happening in the United States where we're going to see this steamrolling effect uh, where radical Islam is taking charge? I don't know. Uh, once I was on, a few weeks ago, I was on the phone with somebody who was living in, uh, in Northern Europe. He was a, he was a, a dissident from Turkey and I said, well, you know, I think that the United States' system of civil society and, and our, is pretty robust, and I think we're going to be able to fend off an awful lot of the, these Islamist challenges. And he said, yeah, well, I thought the same thing about Turkey 15 years ago. Wow. Okay, and now here I am living in, in northern Europe. And the thing is, is that I, I, I think, first of all, Turkey, clearly it's a Muslim-majority country, so there's not 100% isomorphism. You can't draw a one-to-one -one link between, the, or, you know, similarity or comparison between the two but I, I i think i'm a little bit more hopeful uh in large part because i think that there are significant numbers of uh muslims here in the united states that didn't come to the united states to recreate the 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 the, the, the societies that they came from mm -hmm. and historically what we saw is is it you know be prior to the 1980s essentially most of the mosques here in the United States were people or, you know, you know, homes for people or worship homes for people that were not interested in promoting this this radical Islamism 
uh, ideology, but that sometime in around the 1980s, activists from the Muslim Brotherhood came into uh, the West, and they did this in Europe and North America as well, and they essentially founded civil society organizations that they used to essentially advance uh, the, the cause of Islamism under the guise of uh, civil rights in the United States. They they argued like, look, we need we have every right to uh, uh, practice our faith under the First Amendment here in the United States, which is true. But at the same time, some of those practices actually impose on the rights of others. And it also has impacts on the status of women, which is a hugely important uh, issue here in the West. Uh, and so and one of the interesting things is that these these institutions like the Council on American and Islamic Relations and the Islamic uh, Circle of North America and the Muslim American Society, one of the things that they've done is, is that they've harped on the issue of uh, like white supremacism, while some of their activists are actually promoting uh, a religious supremacism. And, and, and that's a very interesting thing. They will argue in favor. They'll, they'll have speakers at conferences that say terrible things about the Jews, will promote jihad, and in some instances have actually even like legitimized the notion of sexual slavery, uh, and, 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 the, and which is clearly the oppression of women. And so what has happened is, is that they, they want us to, in the United States, clearly we have challenged issues of white supremacism, but they, but people haven't really given us much credit for that. Uh, it's almost as if the Civil War and uh, the Civil Rights Movement didn't take place. Uh, and so now what we're seeing is, is that people are using the notion of like white guilt or Western sin uh, to legitimize uh, a, an agenda that would replace one form of oppression for another. And, and racial oppression, uh, you know, for religious oppression, so to speak, or religious authoritarianism. Yeah, so the CARE, which is the Council on American Islamic Relations, they promote themselves as a, you know, this wonderful uh, organization that's, that's peaceful. But if, you know, you can just Google CARE and find out these guys have many ties to terrorism they are supporting terrorists. They've got connections to the Muslim Brotherhood. And just yesterday, actually, uh, I worked with Coach Bruce Pearl, the head men's basketball coach at Auburn University. And, and Coach Pearl, uh, it's been his dream to begin a uh, basketball tour. He's calling it College Birthright Basketball Tour to Israel. And so they leave you know, in just a week or so to Israel for this, this tournament, Auburn University is going to lead off this tour. And Bruce's goal is to have, you know, power five teams, the best teams in, in college basketball every year to go to Israel uh, to play Israeli teams. Uh, for educational purposes, you know, it's also Israel is a great place to play basketball because the Israelis are, are they love their basketball. And so, you know, this has been planned for months and months. I did a piece about it yesterday in the Times of Israel. And anyway, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, they came out uh, yesterday afternoon and demanded that Auburn University cancel this trip to Israel in claiming that the Israelis are apartheid, they are oppressing the Palestinian people. And so, you know, they're steamrolling Coach Bruce Pearl in, in Auburn University, these these radical uh, Islamists. 
So, you know, we are seeing this, and oftentimes people will, will buckle under the pressure of these guys. Well, so, you know, one of the, the interesting things about this is, is that, look, if you look at countries like the United Arab Emirates uh, and, and, and potentially Saudi Arabia, and you're looking at an increasing number of countries in the Middle East that sign the Abraham Accords, right. they're walking away from this stuff because yeah. they understand that it's been a terrible, terrible uh, impact on their societies. It hasn't helped them. The mm -hmm. UAE is now working on ha creating a space program. It's abandoning hostility towards Jews. Countries are working to essentially defeat th this Islamist, this Muslim Brotherhood agenda. And yet what we have is groups like CARE in the United States promoting an agenda uh, that is being abandoned by leaders in the region where it was formulated. It's amazing. And yeah, it's amazing. And I hope and Bruce Pearl should not buckle to any of this. This is this is outrageous. OK, um, because essentially, you know, it's an it's a distraction. OK, they're using this as a unifying political agenda. Uh, and the reason why they're doing this is because it gets them alkalides on from the left. OK, and it, it, that's really, I think, one of the things that they're trying to do is because one of the things that people on the left are willing to do is to level the Islamophobia charge and silence any criticism of Islam or Islamism uh, to, so that it gives the, these activists uh, at CARE a freer reign to make some of the other arguments that the, the left kind of ignores. Yeah, I was I was recently Dexter at a, a college in in uh, Chicago and evangelical school, you know, three, 4,000 students. And one of the professors who teaches on, you know, the Holocaust, he invited a journalist from Israel to speak in chapel. And anyway, the guy gets up, the Israeli, he's speaking about uh, the state of Israel. And there's a group on campus, this evangelical school had allowed this club to form Students for Justice of Palestine. And so in this club were some radical Islamicists that had infiltrated the campus. And when this gentleman got up to speak, this group stood to their feet. And again, this is on an evangelical university. And they began to shout and scream and threaten the guy's life and the security. They were called in, escorted the guy off stage, and the entire chapel service was shut down. And so... Again, these guys are, are fearless when it comes to fomenting hatred towards anyone that would stand in their way. So I so appreciate what you're doing, just exposing this, um, this political ideology. And so just make it clear for us. So, so is, Islamism is a political ideology, and Islam is, tends more towards a religion. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you can see more about this at Islamism.news. And uh, thanks so much, Aaron. It's great. Dexter, you've been a, a, a fearless supporter of Israel. And now you're at the Middle East Forum just exposing radical Islam. And I'm, I'm glad you're there. I pray for you that, you know, God will protect you in the fight. And, you know, helping uh, Americans really understand what what radical Islam is trying to sow uh, the seeds of discord and division within the United States of America. And I, I really pray that you're right and that we won't end up like London or like Turkey 
and the sensible uh, you know, Americans will, will close down this ideology. So we'll see you next time, Dexter. Thanks for being with me. Thank you so much. God bless.